Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm Mary Caffrey with the American Journal of Managed Care, and welcome to Managed Carecast. The last decade has brought great strides in diabetes care. Better insulins and better technology can allow people with diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, to keep their blood sugar from rising and falling in ways that cause long-term damage to their eyesight and vascular systems. New classes of drugs for patients with type 2 diabetes have been shown to cut the risk of heart and renal failure, and more widespread use could help some of these patients avoid dialysis. But the good news has not been felt by everyone. Amid this progress, the rate of amputations climbed 50% between 2009 and 2015. Among African-American patients, the loss of limb rate is triple that of other groups. The mission of the Affordable Care Act to spend more upfront to prevent disease and complications and save money later has bypassed many of these patients for one reason. They lack access to care. 14 states have not expanded Medicaid, including several deep south states where diabetes and obesity rates are the highest. The result of these state-level policy decisions is becoming clear. Research that was presented at the recent meeting of the American Diabetes Association found a 17% decrease in the risk of amputation when patients lived in states that had expanded Medicaid. What's more, the number of hospital admissions for diabetic foot ulcers plummeted in the states that expanded Medicaid, while rising 21% in states that rejected expansion. None of this is news to Dr. Felicia Fakarede, who treats patients at risk of limb loss in the Mississippi Delta. In May, ProPublica featured Dr. Fakarede in a major article on the rise of amputations among African Americans and how access to care and lack of coverage fuels this health system failure. Dr. Fakarede spoke with the American Journal of Managed Care recently about his work in Mississippi through his practice, Cardiovascular Solutions of Central Mississippi. So we're here to speak in the wake of an important ProPublica article that appeared that talked about the incredibly high rates of amputations among African-Americans, generally and specifically in the area of Mississippi where you practice. And the data reported showed that there was a 50% increase in amputations between 2009 and 2015 with African-Americans disproportionately affected. From your perspective, treating patients at risk of amputation, what accounts for the increase over the past decade? Well, thank you for allowing me to participate in this podcast, and um, thank you for the opportunity uh, to speak to your audience. Uh, It's been a privilege to cater to uh, my patients here in Mississippi since 2015. And since my arrival, um, I've noticed that uh, we do have an epidemic uh, of of major proportions here. When we talk about a condition called peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD, Um, which uh, affects 200 million people worldwide and 21 million Americans here in the States. It's the most prevalent, the most deadly, and the most costly disease state that most Americans have never heard of. And the number one risk factor for peripheral arterial disease in the United States is diabetes. Um, Worldwide, uh, we're talking about uh, nicotine and tobacco use uh, being the number one use, but 
diabetes is the number one risk factor. And at its worst case, diabetics are known to prevent uh, to present with the worst stage of peripheral arterial disease known as critical ischemia. And what that entails is basically narrowing of good oxygen-rich blood circulation to your lower limbs, especially from the, from the abdomen to below to your feet. And when you're a diabetic, you present with more severe ischemia. You prevent with more severe rate, uh, uh, levels and, and, and burden of peripheral disease. You're more likely than to have ulcers and gangrene. And ultimately, uh, that will lead to an amputation by a physician. There are certain stages at which this can be caught and this can be treated. If you are screened on time, you can be caught at an early stage. However, we've seen a rising rate of patients who are um, developing diabetes and prediabetes, especially in rural uh, regions with low uh, socioeconomic status and uh, high racial and ethnic minorities. But also we have an increase in our aging population. Um, And that demographic um, is actually the fastest growing population, oxygenarians. And so a combination of both, in addition to um, this inappropriate strategy of amputating a leg without using newly technological advances to try and prevent them from losing those limbs, has culminated to the rise in amputation rates over the past decades. And that's what our article basically highlights. Okay. Mississippi has been among the states with the highest rates of diabetes and obesity for a long time. Um, In order of importance, what are the factors that contribute to the health crisis? Well, you know, it's mainly genetics and lifestyle choices, number one. Um, We do have 750,000 Mississippians that have prediabetes. And so the risk factors for that are overweight, uh, being inactive, uh, having a family history uh, of either diabetes or prediabetes, race, uh, African-Americans and Hispanics um, have higher rates of diabetes than um, their white counterparts, and then age, over 40. Um, and then we also see a high rate of gestational diabetes, and that might do, be due to the lack of um, um, high-quality maternal care that we see in this population, which is tied into the social determinants of health of these patients as well, which has the underpinnings of poverty, low educational level attained, and also lack of access to quality care. So the summation of all those things are actually why pa- uh, patients here in Mississippi uh, have the highest rates of diabetes and obesity. Medicaid expansion has not come to Mississippi, and the state's decision to forego expansion has worked against the rural hospitals because of the way the financing structure of the ACA works. Um, can you describe how this plays out for the patients that you treat? Yes, it's uh, frustrating. Um, frustrating in the sense that we have about 515,000 patients here in the state that are currently uninsured, and majority of them have uh, chronic illnesses. And majority of them are minorities. And so when you talk about a pandemic where an African-American is two to three times more likely to become a diabetic or three times more likely to be a diabetic that will have an amputation, um, that is an intergenerational uh, violent practice that uh, basically uh, predisposes them to poor outcomes when it comes to morbidity, mortality, and disability. And ultimately, the cost and the cost burden not only to the state, to the families, and to our general health care 
is one that we cannot sustain long term. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars to our healthcare systems if you were to combine the economic burden of PAD and diabetes. And so in the lack of expansion of, of Medicaid um, has led to um, basically improper access to care and lack of opportunity uh, for these patients uh, who are already marginalized to get screened uh, for either pre-diabetes, um, being overweight, um, and having um, basically all these risk factors um, that I've mentioned as to um, uh, the highest uh, risk factors for, 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 for that leads to diabetes or, or pre-diabetes. And we lack transparency uh, in this process. And so when a patient does not have insurance, they, do, they sit at home and they wait until their foot is rotten or is gangrenous. Uh, I did mention in my article that there was a patient who was uninsured, who was basically a diabetic for years and developed neuropathy in his feet. And his feet literally got rotten and his dogs ate his feet. And that in itself is criminal. And that is what led him to come to the emergency room because his, his toes were, were eaten by his dog. So that is an uninsured patient that presents to our healthcare system and ultimately suffers an amputation. And once you have an amputation, 80% of these patients are dead within five years. So he's been lost in terms of loss of productivity to our society, but also, unfortunately, he's also given a death sentence uh, within five years which could have been preventable. Mm -hmm. In your view, which of the various um, stakeholders, whether it's the state government, the federal government, commercial payers, or some other entity, um, who could do the most to change the status quo? Well, um, we need everyone on the table, right? The strength in numbers, and um, we need everyone to help change the status quo. I think it starts from the local to um, to state to federal levels. But one thing that I realize is that um, to to using the civil rights movement as an example um, to basically restrain the heartless, you need policy policy on a level whereby it affects um, outcomes. And one thing that I realized here with uh, providers and hospital systems that lacked the care coordination plan or lacked aggressive measures to prevent amputations, thereby it encouraged this, you know, um, uh, this habit by some general surgeons to just use the first strategy of amputating limbs without using limb salvage strategies or referring that patient for procedures whereby they could prevent them from losing their limbs. Um, I decided to take this policy fight to Washington, D.C. and um, converge basically all stakeholders to form a publicized national peripheral arterial disease awareness campaign and a caucus. And the point of the Congressional PD caucus was to educate Congress and communities about peripheral arterial disease and diabetes while supporting legislative activities to improve PAD research, education, and treatment. And actually, the blueprint for this caucus started with the Diabetes Caucus. There is a Diabetes Caucus, and, 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 and with the same effect. And so my hat goes off to Congressman Donald Payne Jr. and Congressman Gus Bilirakis for establishing this first ever bipartisan PAD caucus in Congress to work on these issues. And some of these issues are not only establishing an awareness campaign um, for 
for PAD, which has a very low awareness nationally. And, and two, it's to try and incentivize collaboration of physicians such as myself and endocrinologists to work well together and work well with our wound care centers and work well with our infectious disease specialists and come up with good care coordination plans to treat patients before they are offered an amputation, such as the strategy that, um, that is currently employed in, in the oncological field, right? Um, and one thing that is hard for patients here in the Delta is that we do not have an endocrinologist within a hundred mile radius. And so these patients have to travel long distances. And so some of the challenges are, you know, maybe we could utilize telehealth to help incentivize that collaboration. And if we have good outcomes, then that can be incentivized to coordinate more often and to take care of these patients more often. And lastly, maybe we could use um, uh, basically our mandate stating that we do not amputate any limb without uh, an appropriate uh, anatomical testing, which evaluates the anatomy of that patient's leg to see if we can open up the blockages using minimally invasive procedures before offering an amputation strategy. Because you and I know that that, that would lead to not only um, a, a, a mortality sentence with 80% dying within five years, but a very costly sentence for the patient and the family, which cost them about $100,000 a year. And the average Mississippian earns about $39,000 a year. So that is a burden they cannot afford. So I think policy on the national front and then bringing it back down to the the local front are very important. The events of the past two weeks renewed any discussion about addressing these long-term conditions of poverty and poor health in the area where you practice? (laughs) Well, um, the events of these last two weeks... um, you know, um, the impact um, of race and um, what I call statistical discrimination um, in the healthcare field is not well publicized, and uh, a lot of physicians uh, are not comfortable talking about it. And what I mean by that is that, you know, race lies at so much of the core of the issues. Um, that that we find problem, problematic, not only in medicine today, but also in other social uh, structures and institutions. Um, the lack of coverage, for instance, like you and I mentioned, in terms of um, um, the Medicaid expansion here in Mississippi, majority are minorities were affected, um, but people did not speak up against that. Um, there are the picture of watching an amputee, uh, it's a snapshot of how nonchalant some people are around here as to, oh, yeah, you know what? Her mom was an amputee. Her grandmother was an amputee. Her grandfather was an amputee. This is normal for them. Um, that conversation um, should start up a visceral reaction because what you're doing is you're already, you're already you know, taking a marginalized population and you're adding on burdens of health care um, that they cannot afford from a social determinants of health standpoint. But also, you know, the goal is to have some kind of systemic equity, um, bring that patient to their full health potential. And if there are systemic policies in place that are pro- prohibiting that, or there are um, statistical discrimination biases or subconscious biases, 
whereby an amputation first strategy is offered because someone is poor or an African-American or Hispanic or Native American, um, that needs to be addressed by our healthcare society. And as much as people don't want to admit that, that is in play in terms of our current health structure. And that needs to be addressed all over the country. You mentioned social determinants of health, and we've seen that term explode in the le- in the medical literature over the last couple of years. Do policymakers not understand the connection between social determinants of health and the outcomes <laughs> that you see, or do they understand and not just don't do anything? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I hate to say that they see it and not do anything. Um, to date, the strategies for addressing social determinants of health in the U.S. has been elusive. I think we have a lack of progress um, uh, and rising inequalities um, that have engendered some form of complacency when it comes to uh, policies that are coming from the top, but also in terms of implementing those policies on a local level. Um, for us, we found out that community outreach was very important in terms of explaining to people what determines social determinants of health and the impact it has. Um, if you look at what COVID did, COVID basically just uh, it basically just unveiled and showed that we had an epidemic of inequality. That's all it did. So if you were to take a a disproportionately low-income family here in Mississippi Delta that doesn't have access to a a job or health insurance, and so they're called, quote-unquote, frontline workers, right? But they're not paid as frontline workers. And so they're forced to work as health aid workers, so they're exposed to a virus. And they have underlying diabetes. They cannot therefore take a day off or can social distance at home because they will go home to an intergenerational household where they live with their grandmother or grandfather. And then some of them just live in areas where actually they do lack access to water. And so talk about hand washing practices that the CDC guidelines recommend. And then we talk about education and the literacy level, the functional literacy to even understand those guidelines. That is something that generationally has inhibited them from actually gaining equity. And then you tag on that community and social context of stress and lack of, of uh, and, and lack of social integration and discrimination. And then you add, you, that's 80% of their problem. The healthcare component is actually 20%. So until our policies invest more in prevention that targets all these economic stability and neighborhood and physical environments and education and food, water, deserts and community and social context. Um, and we do it on all levels where people get it. And even healthcare superimposed on our healthcare outreach programs that are sponsored by all these rural hospitals that are making dollars off of this, they need to understand that. Because when you talk about, you know, COVID, we talk about telehealth. Half of my patients do not have the internet bandwidth or your smartphones to have a good communication with or to visualize their wounds. And so you're seeing in real life some of the, the difficulties, and you can't see that unless you actually live here and you go out and you go to these communities and have dialogues with basically what I call community advocates who are in the front lines. And so our policies have to reflect and, ta- and target those issues. And we have to have funding and evaluation of innovative interventions and policies that will take care of th- those problems. That's my stance on that. 
Are there solutions to preventing diabetes and the amputations that happen downstream that are within reach that would be relatively minimal cost um, or minor changes in, say, state regulations that would improve access that would be you know, achievable, that could be right. done quickly? If so, what would those be? So quickly is, uh, I don't know how to say this quickly, but quickly is to have a reversal in our mindset by the U.S. Preventative Service Task Force to encourage screening, testing of patients who are at risk for peripheral vascular disease or who are known to have a high rate of amputation. And these patients are um, racial and ethnic minorities, so African-Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, people who live in low socioeconomic status, people who live in Mississippi, who live in West Virginia and Appalachia, uh, patients who are diabetics, patients who have chronic kidney disease, who have heart disease, strokes, patients who have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. That needs to be the first thing we need to do. Unfortunately, they are looking for research and more data to include these populations. But if you look at the recent trials that have been out, about 4 to 5% of trials to date have only included African-Americans. You are not going to get that data. <laughs> I don't care how long we wait for that, right? Even women. Only about 39% of trials have included women. So we have to have realistic goals. The second thing we can do on a state level is, and COVID actually um, uh, shed light on this issue, if we get rid of certificate of need laws and, and, and abolish them in certain states that still have them, what we can do is we can increase delivery of high quality care in an outpatient setting. That is a cost savings to the over, over, uh, already burdened hospital systems. If you look at the Delta, for instance, majority of hospitals are in the red or about to shut down because they already had um, very uh, difficult financial strains pre-COVID. And so when you can shift the cost to cost savings as an outpatient or centers that can show low cost to the patient, it takes a lower margin to set them up. Uh, they're more nimble and responsive and pivot to the needs of a community. It can be started by groups that reflect and understand that demographic of the community which is what I did to be able to take care of a patient who's having a difficult time affording the cost of inpatient care and the lack of resources available to him before an amputation. So I brought him to my center and I took care of the patient. So these, these, um, these type of centers or these type of outpatient facilities not only saves Medicare or CMS um, dollars or Medicaid dollars, but they save the tax taxpayers who, who are majority of the cost of healthcare costs today. We, you and I pay for, for, for majority of these costs. It saves our dollars as well. It saves the patient less copay out of pocket expenses, reduce cost compared to inpatient settings. And more important, they can get the same quality, if not better quality outcomes. And as long as those quality outcomes are reported and research data can be you know, extracted and extrapolated from this to publicize it, I think that's a great uh, model to actually, um, to actually have in all these underserved areas. My last question is, if you could make one change to the healthcare system, what would it be? Oh, wow. Well, it's an easy one. Um, access to comprehensive quality care um, is important. It's important for promoting and maintaining great health. Um, it's important for preventing, um, you know, chronic diseases. It's important for reducing unnecessary disability and preventing deaths. Most of these deaths could be avoided. 
and more importantly, um, you know, it's important for achieving health equity for all Americans. As an African-American cardiovascular, um, um, endovascular uh, specialist uh, who practices in Mississippi that has a 37% African-American population, um, that was the reason I came here was to provide some form of a platform and a center for patients to be able to come in and irrespective of their insurance status, be able to take care of these patients. And so we feel that we have that model. And as long as you can, you know, hone in and emphasize preventative strategies or prevention at home or prevention in our schools, uh, our allied health professionals need to know about preventative strategies in med schools and not how to always intervene at the end stages. If we can focus on that, 50% of all the cardiovascular burdens can be can be prevented. And then we have better outreach to teach our patients how to live right, how to eat right, and uh, and and how to prevent becoming a statistic like an amputee. So that is my solution. Um, and, uh, and that's it. Okay. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today. To learn more, visit AJMC.com. To get in touch with us, you can email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.